welcome to Hit the Six. It is Tuesday, the 27th of April. Uh, we're both in our lunch breaks at work, aren't we, Michael? But thought, you know what, there's nothing I'd rather do with the 40 minutes I've carved out for my lunch than to spend 15 or so chatting to you about uh, a bit of cricket. How have you been? Yeah, no, absolutely. Can't, can't think of a better way to take a break from policy documents and spreadsheets than to chat about my favourite sport with you, Rob, my favourite friends. But yeah, I'm good. I'm all right. Uh, maybe you might even play a game of cricket at some point in the next couple of weeks. How about you? Yeah, I'm exactly the same. I'm, I'm well. Lovely sunny weather. I was down in Kent on a little holiday at the end of last week, which was really nice. First game, we've got an internal pre-season game on Saturday. And then the first league game is the Saturday after the 8th of May. So gearing up for the cricket season, I'll be having a net tomorrow. It's, it's difficult netting with work and everything else, but I don't have a car, so I can't drive to my club. But I'm doing my very best to turn the arm over, get ready for, um, yeah, hopefully a full season of, of cricket, COVID willing and lockdown willing. Um, it's Yeah, it's great. And of course, the county championship is in full flow. So there's plenty of professional cricket to get stuck into. Um, anything catch your eye from the last round of fixtures that finished yesterday? Well, all I can say is I'm very excited to be watching the Experience England pros opening for us against New Zealand, Adam Life and Hasiba Mead. You know, all about that comeback story. Adam Life averaging 90 odd, Hasiba Mead scoring two tons in a game on a challenging pitch. And um, breaking the record for the number of balls uh, based in a counter championship match. So I think I saw a tweet basically saying there's never, there's nowhere near as much goodwill for anything in this world as there is for Hassi Pamid on cricket Twitter. And I think it's true. We all want him to do well. We want him to come back. So that is exciting. How about you? Well, I mean, that was good from, from his point of view. As you said, it was hardly the, the trickiest pitch to battle on the, in the world it seemed like hardly hardly a wicket fell in that game but nonetheless you've got to score the runs you've got to face all those balls and um, so fair play to him uh, obviously sorry capitulating against Middlesex getting bowled out for mid mid 100s at 150 both in both innings Toby Rowling Jones among the wickets that was of note sorry with that you know pretty gilded lineup Burns and Stoneman and Pope and all these others are performing that badly and I suppose the only other one which was a bit galling for me was Northamptonshire chased down like 355 against Glamorgan with Ricardo Vasconcelos scoring a, a rapid 180, almost at a runner ball on the fourth day. And all I can say is in my six years as coach of Northamptonshire on cricket captain 2019, he has never done anything for me. So it's very bitter. To, I'm very bitter to see him do You've, quite so You've well. kept him throughout. Kept... Oh, yeah, I've kept him throughout because he's, um, he's a keeper. And he, so I kind of, I tend to, I haven't opened with him, which is what he does for Northamptonshire in real life. I kind of bat him at seven or eight and he kind of pinch hits at 30 every so often. And then whenever I have given him a chance up the order, he just hasn't done anything for me. Sounds like a more consistent run in his real position. Well, I think that's poor management on your part. Well, sorry, when you've got um, Steve Smith at three, absolutely churning out the runs, there isn't much need for um, Ricardo to perform as well as he's doing in, in real life. But anyway, a, a massive tangent there. Uh, but no, it's been a good, good week of county cricket. Nottingham extending their winless run in first-class cricket, I think two or three years now is getting. I mean, it's getting pretty bad, and they've just had Jake Ball ruled out for a few games. Do you think that holds them back, Rob? <laughs> we were discussing this just before we, um, we started recording. I know you think he's a very average cricketer. I don't, I don't disagree, but I, I still think having a man who's played 24 games of international cricket missing from your lineup is is still going to hurt you, even if he's maybe not the most dynamic or effective bowler that there, that there is in, in the county game, albeit the wider game of cricket. It's true, and he took those wickets for England at a decent rate, only an average of 114. 
unfortunately with the ball. But yeah, I'm sure I'm sure I miss him. We've also yeah. got the, um, the humanitarian crisis going on amongst the IPL, which it seems bizarre. There's this glitzy, glamorous tournament which costs so much money going on, while outside of the bubble, people literally can't get oxygen. It feels very weird to me. And you've seen a few players already leave. Other players have stayed, like Pat Cummins, and donated money to the efforts to support people who are struggling. What's your thought on it, Rob? Well, I was, I was going to ask you, if you were a player, would you go home? Or would you stay, stay out there, keep playing? I think if it wasn't too financially devastating to leave, and even if it was, maybe I probably would try and leave. Um, but that said, with absolutely no like no context, no real life awareness of what the situation's like, what the players are there for, what they need to get out of that tournament financially, what it feels like to be playing there, because you know, there's the argument that they're providing welcome relief. So, I mean, I'm saying that with absolutely no knowledge, but I think, yeah, I, my instinct would be to get out. And uh, Liam Livingston got out just in time to not have to do the 10-day quarantine, I think. Um, the three Australians have left. I'm not sure if anyone else has left, but yeah. What about you? Yeah, I, I think I'd stay. I, there, there is a point where it feels is it appropriate for the tournament to continue. I don't think that's a decision for a player to make. I, I wonder if I was an organiser whether you'd think maybe we should put this on hold and continue at a, a later stage. But I, but I think I continue to play. I think I don't really know why. I think I'm there. that argument maybe you made about it providing some light relief um, for people to enjoy. I think there's an aspect of the show must go on that I don't know. I resonate with and always kind of think yeah you know let's stick it out I'm always kind of prone to stick something out rather than walk away but that's of course no judgment or criticism on those who've decided to leave whether it be for because they don't think it's appropriate or whether it be because of concerns about their health and family or whatever you know I think it's I don't think you can really have too much of a go at anyone what whichever decision they make and I suppose because the real hope and prayer is that the situation gets a lot better quickly they're able to get oxygen there they're able to provide medical care and of course the big risk and concern is and of course it spreads outside of India into Pakistan or I know it's already spreading into Nepal into Bangladesh um, into countries that have even maybe less infrastructure than India do in terms of healthcare and that kind of thing uh, and the knock-on effect that could be. I did have this moment yesterday where I think someone someone tweeted it saying you know there's a lot of money that goes into the IPL this could be better spent in this boys this growing humanitarian crisis and I did think to myself yeah the amount of money that must go into the IPL to keep the show running and it must be quite expensive to keep the show running all the bubbles and everything why couldn't this just be pumped into supporting the country of India who who are literally dying and then I guess I thought that's probably too idealistic why would BCCI put any money into that they put money into cricket that's what they do so I guess it was just all my socialisty principles being yeah. a bit more idealistic, but it did. It, it, there's a bit of me that it does feel wrong. Yeah, no, definitely. I, it's hard to know though. I'm I'm unsure whether the issue is a lack of money that's causing this problem, or whether it's been policy issues, procurement issues. I mean, India's one of the largest economies in the world. Of course, there's a huge amount of poverty, but there is also a lot of money that the government have at their disposal, that kind of thing. So, is it they've just made errors and they've had issues in procuring vaccines and procuring oxygen? Or is it that they just don't, they just can't afford to and all the money that is in India is getting pumped into cricket? I, I'm not sure that is the case. So I, in a sense, it's a neat point because I, probably neither of us have enough context for understanding how 
um, India's government finances are like, um, what their supply chains are like, how their medical care and how their health system operates to make an educated guess. But you'd certainly like to hope that money would go towards the health effort and the public health concerns over putting on a luxury cricket tournament so people can watch it around the world on, on Sky Sports or whatever else. Yeah, you would hope so. One, um, <clears throat> going back to the cricket side of it, one bit of good news, England fans, Owen Morgan was looking pretty ropey, but he's just hit about 20-40-odd yesterday to win his side of the game. And they came in at a pretty tricky position. I think they were 17 for three, chasing 120-odd. And he saw them home. It'd be nice to have Owen Morgan in form for the T20 World Cup this winter. Um, don't think many of the England players are really pulling up trees, although Chris Wokes, I think, was doing surprisingly well. Um, and does beg the question, why hasn't Chris Wokes played a T20 international for England for such a long time and Tom Cohen keeps playing? So, I don't know, could could present some interesting selection challenges to what's been the status quo in the T20 team for a while now. Moe yeah. Nally also doing very well with the bat. And again, it seems mad that he didn't play in that India T20 series. Yeah, indeed. Um, but I do feel sorry for the selectors. There are so many different... Uh, there are so many options. We do have good strength in depth. You could pick all sorts of players, and then there's so many fixtures. Who do you prioritise to pick and what? In a way, you're always feeling they're going to leave someone out who could have who could have played. But it did feel particularly glaring that Moeen Ali was consistently overlooked in that India 2020 series, while Sam Curran bob one over and batted at eight or nine, basically doing nothing in most of the games. Yeah. Um, we'll see. We'll see. We've got an exciting summer coming up. And just briefly, Rob, just to let you know, I've decided I'm a Southern Brave fan. For the 100 this year. I think we should do a preview episode just about the 100. I mean, that'd be fun. Yeah, well, I'm going to be a London Spirit fan because they're playing at Lords and I can go to Lords. So, oh, um, they've got a classy kit sponsored by Tyrrells. Yeah, is Tyrrells, exactly. They've got that little strap line, terribly, terribly tasty. I'm all about the Pombears at Southern Brave, you see. Might get, might get Warner on the back of my shirt. Who knows? Um, well, yeah, great. I mean, there's, other, there's been quite a lot happened since we last met. Ed Smith is no longer chairman of selectors. We won't touch on that now. It might be something we pick up in a, a future podcast about the best way to pick an England team. Uh, and the only other news, Michael, is that I'll be at four days of England New Zealand. I was successful in the ballots of NCC members, so I'll be one of the 2,000 or so at, at Lords for those games, provided they um, goes ahead with a crowd in early June. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, I'm incredibly jealous right now. Can we find a large suitcase? I could just come with you. Yeah, smuggle you in. Um, nice. Anyway, uh, I suppose for this week, apart from us nattering just now, uh, we thought we'd share an interview that we actually did um, quite a while ago, I think around Christmas time. Uh, but for various reasons, I weren't able to um, air it. There were yeah, a whole load of reasons why we hadn't released it up until now. Uh, and that's with a man called um, Andrew Wingfield Digby. In fact, the Reverend Andrew Wingfield Digby, uh, who I've come across in capacity with Christians in Sports. Um, I did a sort of a two-year internship with that charity um, after university, and he actually helped set up and ran Christians in Sport for quite a long period of time. So that's where the initial connection came from. But he's had a really interesting life and career, particularly in cricket, because he he's a First-class cricketer, took, I think it's 97, 98 first-class wickets, something like that. Um, mainly playing for the Combined Universities 11, for Oxford University um, as well. Um, but had a glittering minor counties career with Dorset, which were his home county, um, including a very controversial episode that we touched on with him in the podcast. Uh, and then, but perhaps most notably from our listeners' point of view, he was at the 
chaplain or spiritual advisor of the England cricket team through much of the 1990s into around 2000, I think was maybe his last tour. So we thought we'd catch up with him, hear about his life in cricket, how he got into it, and what it was like working as a chaplain for the England cricket team, as well as touching a little bit on his Christian faith and the impact that's had on his life and how he, he views sports. Uh, but all in all, it was a really interesting uh, interview and it was good to chat with him, wasn't it, Michael? Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Completely different perspective to um, like to the guests we've had on previously. Um, and really lovely, thoughtful guy. Enjoyed chatting to him. Hope everyone else does. Great. So, yeah, um, here it is from when we caught up with him around sort of the turn of the year. Good evening, Andrew. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and for being with us. How are you? Good, thank you. So far, uh, everybody has stayed healthy and um, we're surviving all right. But uh, having reached the venerable age of 70, which incidentally makes me available for the England over 70s, in case any of them are watching, um, uh, I am vulnerable, but we haven't got it, so we're okay. Good, good. Have you, have you played much senior cricket? Over I the played last a lot. Since when I got to 50, I started playing for the Oxfordshire over 50s, and uh, that was great. And uh, we won the whole thing at Lords 2008, beat Lancashire off the last ball of the match, which was fantastic. And then over 60s, when I got to a 60, so now 70, but I'm hoping still to be selected to the over 60s. Right. Other than like physical differences, is there a big difference? One big difference you'd want to talk about between playing um sort of over 60s over 70s cricket and then younger like i haven't had an over 70s game yet but i'm sort of slightly think that if you can stand up you've got a chance but uh um big difference between over 60s and over 50s is the fielding that the fielding at over 50s is still not bad over 60s it gets pretty ropey but the batting and bowling remains pretty good one of the things that i notice particularly though as you get older is that slow bowling becomes more deadly because people don't use their feet anything like as well so the, 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 the very slower bowler who can pitch it in the right place becomes quite a, a more deadly weapon. A bit like 2020, really. Yeah, there's a guy at my cricket club called Steve Saker who plays for Surrey over 50s or over 60s. Right. And he still plays Surrey Division 4 first 11 cricket and right. takes a lot of wickets being exactly yeah. that bowler, bowling yeah. off one step, not really yeah. spinning it, but it is slow and it's on a good length and the wickets yeah. aren't fantastic. Yeah. And he takes, you know, wickets at an average of 13, 14, going at, going at two and over. He'd, he'd be a deadly bowler in seniors cricket by the time. Yeah, I, I, I think he is. Um, yeah. I think he takes a lot, a lot of wickets. Uh, but taking it right back for you, for you with your crickets, right back to, well, 60 years ago plus, and when you were a child, when did you really get into crickets? I can tell you that extremely easy. I was, I'm, had two older brothers, so we played in the garden all the time. Uh, endlessly and of course they were older and bigger than me so it was I had to keep up with them so I was the most competitive uh, we were all about the same standard I would say but I played my first seniors game for Sherburn Town Cricket Club in Dorset on the day that England won the World Cup in 1966 and they were so desperate for players they had to pick me age 15 so that was my first senior senior game and uh, uh I'd played quite a bit for the second 11 and, until then, uh, but that was when I really got going. But I didn't really, I wasn't at all outstanding at school. And um, my cricket didn't really take off, to be honest, until I got up to Oxford in 1970. And, and, and mainly because I was a batter at school, 
just bowled occasionally. But when I got to Oxford, I discovered that everybody wanted to bat and hardly anybody wanted to bowl. So I thought, work hard at my bowling. And I, just, I really trained hard to make myself into a reasonable bowler. And when you were at Oxford playing, did you start at that point to have ambitions about thinking I can make a, a bit of a career out of this? I can start taking this a bit seriously? Or was it always, you know, something was, you enjoyed doing? At every stage that I played, I couldn't believe I was playing at that standard. So, no, the answer is, because I, I really wasn't, I'm, I mean, ask any of my contemporaries, I'm afraid they'll tell you I wasn't very good. <laughs> but And so I felt that I was making the best of my ability at every stage. But I... Only, only when I was 25 and I was just starting to start at Theological College, Gloucestershire sort of offered me a contract of sorts. They said, oh, come and play a few games, you know, that sort of, that sort of offer. But by then I had set out on another track. So, but I knew I wasn't good enough to play professionally. I was a decent minor county player. Well, looking at your records, um, Crick Info tells me 96 first-class wickets, an average of 33. Yeah, and... Crick Info offered me those stats today... Um, I'd, I'd take them. I'd be very happy with that. So you've, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. Was there any particular first-class games where you did well or you think that, that was my, my best game at the very best level I ever played at? We played Gloucestershire in 1976, it must have been. And Gloucestershire were very strong. They had Zahir, Sadiq, Fote, Cooper and Proctor. I remember all the first five because I got all five out. And Vic Marks was captain. And he let, I bowled, I think, you'd have to check in wisdom, but I think I bowled 42 overs and took five for 142. I got all five of them out, <laughs> but all of them had over 90 by the time I got them out. <laughs> but I, as far as I recall, I bowled virtually all day <laughs> while these people all made 90. The only one who made 100 was a lad called Cooper, Nick Cooper. But Sadiq, Proctor and Zahir, who could play, all got out in the 90s to me, <laughs> which must have driven them absolutely nuts, I think. So I remember that very well. Um, uh, of course, I remember the varsity matches that we, you know, we, and we won in 76, which was great. Um, we had a really good, good combined side in the Benson Hedges in that, that year, beat Yorkshire, the combined side beat Yorkshire in the Benson Hedges at Barnsley in front of a full house. That was a momentous day. So lots of really great days. And of course, playing the tourists. What you, you say, I've got 96 first class wickets. What that doesn't record is the fact that I took three against the Australians. Kim Hughes twice. No doubt he wept pr prodigiously. And, uh, and Gary Cozier. But it was only a two day game. We thought it was a first class game. So they, I thought I had 99 first class wickets and I dropped a court and bold in the varsity match, which would have been 100. And I dropped a dolly, caught and bowled. And I thought that would be a hundred, my 100th wicket. But then they took these three Aussies away. Aussies don't count, apparently. <laughs> Nick, Nick Marks is your captain, did you say, Andrew? He was captain uh, in 76 and 77, yeah. I think Vic spoke to us about this on this podcast, didn't he, Rob? He was telling us about his days playing for that combined side and how good a side you guys had, actually. We did. Have, I mean, the, the combined the combined side was a really, really good side. I think most of them got paid for it later. Rather, but only I think I think I was probably the only one who didn't get paid. <laughs> that that must have been quite a that game against Yorkshire at Barnsley that you won. That must have been wonderful. All these all these public school boys from Oxbridge rocking Great up to Barnsley um, and and winning that. Go on, tell us a bit more about that day. Well, it was very funny because um, we. It was packed out at Barnsley, and uh, it felt like you'd been 
honestly, going on a tour to a foreign country, to be honest, I mean, coming up from Oxford in our Morris thousands. And um, the, the speaker, and now I think I bowled, the opening bowlers bowled a few overs, and then the, the announcer said, and from the pavilion end, A.R. Wingfield Digby, and from the other end, R. LeCue Savage, who, Richard Savage, who went on to play for Warwickshire. And there was this sort of burst of laughter from the crowd <laughs> as we posh boys were introduced to the Barnsley, to the Barnsley faithful. And um, anyway, we, we won an amazing game, really. We won quite comfortably in the end. We, we bowled them out for about 170 and knocked them off for, I think, three wickets. Boycott wasn't playing. And he came into the changing room beforehand and, and said, oh, I wish you lads luck. And of course, he really didn't mind if we won because he if he if he wasn't playing he didn't bother him if we if <laughs> we know what he's like and um anyway when he came in at the end he was all smiles because we had won you know he was delighted you know Yorkshire can't do without him and so I wish you luck but not that much bloody luck he said so uh, anyway but we thrashed him it was amazing amazing game we won quite a few actually I think I played eight Benson Hedges games and I think we won three of them with that combined side so it was a really it was a really strong side Marks Tavare Roebuck, Hignall, Parker—they were—they were a serious, you know, serious side. That was the—that was the best side I ever played in, without doubt. And Imran, of course, in '75. How how was it um, combining all of this wonderful cricket with a bit of university work? University work—I don't, I don't recall much of that. <laughs> I've one um, tutor. It, I think it was. Um, I was doing history as an undergraduate, so that was '69 to '72. And I think it was one paper called Political Thought. And I was meant to go to a tutor in Morden College. I was in Keeble College. And he might, had to do this paper in the summer term of 1971 while I was playing cricket six days a week. And uh, so I never even met him. I never I met him. We just, we just occasionally sent a letter to each other and uh, somehow got away with it. Amazing, really. Yeah. Had to catch up. It was September was always quite hard work catching up before the start of term. <laughs> Yeah. Once, I, once I was at Theological College that second time, 75, 6 or 7, um, the, the academic pressure was less then and uh, uh, it, it was pretty easy to combine the two. Yeah, yeah. Nice. academic pressure less, more cricket equals more cricket. Well, by then it was, I was on the ordination course and it, I mean, for someone who had done an Oxford degree, it wasn't all that academically stretching, especially as I more or less abandoned Greek and Hebrew pretty early on. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned there, Andrew, being ordained. You are the Reverend yeah. Andrew Wingfield Digby. Uh, you are therefore a Christian. Yeah. Obviously that's been pretty central to your life and your work, ordained and worked in Christian ministry for many years. How did you become a Christian in the first place? Funny enough, it links in with sport because I was at school at Sherburne and another much more distinguished old Sherburnian was David Shepherd, who became the Bishop of Liverpool. And he came to preach during my last um, term at school. And I was very impressed by what he said. And because he had been an England cricketer who had become a clergyman, I thought that was an extraordinary thing to do. And he invited me to come and work at a place called the Mayflower Family Centre in Canning Town in the East End of London, but in my gap year. And I went and did that and lived in a Christian community there. And it was there that I was really challenged to commit myself as a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home, but I had never really made any sort of solid commitment so it was when I was 19 and uh, just before coming up to university. So I was a very young Christian when I came up to university, but I was very struck by the quality of the people, by David himself, um, 
I mean, just some of your um, people listening to this will remember that David Shepard was very involved in the whole uh, Stop the Tour, the whole Dolivera business, the whole Stop the Tour thing, which was all going on at that time, 1969. And um, he was often out demonstrating and trying to uh, get awareness of apartheid and trying to um, uh, encourage a sporting boycott of South Africa, which was very controversial. But in the evenings, he'd come back to the Mayflower Family Centre and I'd have all the questions, you know, that all of us have, you know, you know, why is there suffering in the world? What about other religions? All these things. And David would sit down and answer these questions with me very patiently and encourage me to read the Bible uh, as a sort of adult. And I was confronted, I think, with my need for forgiveness and the truth of Jesus and um, made a commitment in June of 1969. And um, Christians in Sport was an organisation you ran for many years that you involved in establishing. Uh, at that stage, when I became a Christian, there, there was no Christians in Sport. Sports ministry was no, no, nobody had ever heard of it. There were just a few people like David Shepherd and C.T. Studd going way back and one or two other famous sports people, but very few. And there was really no connection between uh, the world of Christianity and sport. In fact, I remember when I went on my first Christian camp in sort of house party, because I was quite good at cricket, they wanted me to I bat left-handed. They wanted me to bat right-handed to give the others a chance. But I thought this is absolutely crazy, you know. And, uh, uh, and so one of the one of the first things that I did when we started Christians in Sport was to encourage youth camps where people's sport was recognised as a gift from God and help them to be excellent at it, not hide it away. But for five years of my Christian life, I I didn't really understand that, and I I reached a point only as I headed towards ordination that I kind of said to God, you know, I'll only play cricket if you want me to sort of thing. You know, I only want to do this if it's, if it's, if it's your will for my life. And I came to see that, you know, at theological college, people were very good at Greek or playing the organ or, you know, all sorts of things. I could bowl an outswinger that nipped back occasionally. That's what I could do. That was my gift, you know, and uh, I did good. That. None of the others could do that. I, I was really good at that. And uh, I, I had never really seen sports talent as being a gift from God that, that God could use. So I felt at that point that sport was my mission field. That right from, from about five years after I became a Christian, sure. I felt that the reason God had enabled me to play cricket and to play at a much higher standard than my ability really should. I mean, I really was out of my depth quite a lot of the time playing with Imran Khan, ridiculous. And, um, I felt that God had opened that door for a reason, and that led to Christians in Sport. Can you tell us a little bit about how you went about setting that up? Christian? Well, there were a number of us um, who, were, who, who loved sport and who loved Jesus. Uh, and we began, to, we, we, well, the, the person who brought us together was a, an American who was over here with the tennis tour, every Wimbledon he came over, he was very much Stan Smith's sort of mentor and, and so on. And Stan Smith won Wimbledon in 72. And for the next few years, uh, this guy Eddie came over. And while he was here, he tried to find Christian people who were playing sport at a reasonable level. And he found about eight or 10 of us and uh, invested time in us, particularly me, encouraged me to see my sport in a Christian context. And, uh, and the others were the same. And we began to meet together and we it gradually grew. I mean, I think there was a sense in which God's spirit was on it. You know, there was a, a sense that the time was right and that God was building something. Sport was becoming more and more important, if you like, more and more, you know, the whole kind of 
I mean, sport was very important before in the 70s, but you know, since the 70s, with the massive growth of professional sport and the coverage of sport, sport has become much more into the conscious of, of people. And, and of course, people are playing sport more than they've ever played before. So suddenly there was this great unreached people group, which only sports people could reach. You're not gonna, you're not gonna reach, the only people who are gonna reach my cricket team are the people who play in the cricket team, realistically. I mean, that's, those are my friends. That's, that's where you are. That's where you live. So sport gives you a wonderful opportunity to live out your faith and, and hopefully share your faith appropriately with your teammates. And that's what we all began to do. And some one or two quite prominent people profess faith. Justin Fashionu, for instance, Bernhard Langer, Chris Akabusi, Baiga Tugamala. I mean, a few people in the high profile world kind of gave us a bit of credibility, if you like. But most of it was happening at grassroots level. And the youth camps were really important, called Sports Plus. Yeah. For, for yourself, then, your sports team for a long time was Dorset, Minor Counties Crickets. Yeah, I grew up in Dorset, so I, I never, even though from 1970, well, some 1969, we lived in, uh, in, in Oxford, and then I was in London for a while, but I always sort of went back to play for Dorset, really. Dorset was my team, but um, and it was quite difficult. In the 70s, I used to play two or three games a year, that sort of thing. Uh, and then when I got ordained in 1977, obviously it was difficult. Most of the two-day games were Sunday, Monday. So between 77 and 1984, when I was working in two parishes in North London, I couldn't play many of the games because they were Sunday, Sunday, Monday. But then when I started Christians in Sport in 1984, I didn't have regular Sunday engagements. So I then played um, for eight years every game and was captain eventually and all sorts of things happened then which you'll probably ask me about <laughs> well yeah i wanted to ask this i just i basically gave a little read of your, your wikipedia um before game, just to get a, a, i i knew you know bits and bobs about you as you know I've, I've been involved with christians in sport myself and all the rest yeah. of it um, and i came across this story in 1988 versus Cheshire, where you instructed a bowler to bowl 14 consecutive wides to basically make it a close game. By the sounds of it, it was petering out to a boring draw. Um, you got Cheshire back into the game, so they'd go for it, and you could then take wickets and win the game, Correct. which duly happens. Tell us a little bit more, more about that. Okay. Black for it by the sounds of things. Why do you think that was? Do you th we were, I mean, we're talking last week to Steve Eskenazi, who's now the Middlesex captain. Yeah. Uh, and he was speaking about when they played Yorkshire, when it was all coming to about four years ago, it was Yorkshire, Somerset and Middlesex going for the title. And um, basically Yorkshire chucked on declaration bowlers. He smashed your 40 balls yeah. to make it a close yeah. game, robbing Somerset of what could have been the title yeah. because they kind of yeah. fabricated or uh, manipulated the game to make it yeah. close and exciting. Thought, thoughts on that as a general practice in cricket, but then also particularly this instance. Okay, it, uh, in, in 1988, the minor counties divided the East Division and West Division. And the whole thing was to get into, the, I think the top three got a Nat West game against a major county, which was a prestigious thing to get and, uh, and uh, a bit of a money spinner, obviously, as well for the club. But so the crucial thing was to qualify for a Nat West game in your division. Cheshire were miles ahead and have effectively won the division. So um, in a sense, 
in a, yeah, in a sense, I didn't mind whether we won or lost. If we lost, it wasn't the end of the world because they were going to win. So I was determined, basically, as the captain of a two-day game, I was determined to avoid draws if I possibly could in a two-day game, which often required manipulation. Um, and in this particular game, I mean, it, it, what, I did get into trouble with one or two other counties who did feel that I had um, pulled a fast one. And I'm not sure that I'd do it again. But in the context of that particular game, we had set them 200 or so, 220, something like that, I think. And they were eight, they were, they were 30 for six. They were, th we were bowling them out. And, uh, and then number seven and eight got stuck in and really started blocking and blocking and blocking it. And I just got so frustrated that, you know, I thought we had the best side in the division at our mercy and we just could not get these old boys out. And so I said to them, look, if we give you five and over, will you go for it? Will you, will you go for it? If we get it down to five and over, we only had 11 overs left at this point. So one of them said, well, I have to go and ask the captain, Neil O'Brien. And he couldn't, he, so he went off pretending he needed a drink. It all became slightly farcical. So he went off and Neil O'Brien locked himself in the loo because he didn't want to have anything to do with it. So the chap came back and said, it's up to me to decide. And we, and the other bats, he said, well, yeah, we'll go for it. You can get us down. So I bowled, got this chap to bowl 14 sets of four, four wides. So that's uh, 56 runs. Then he had to bowl his over, of course. So he went for four in his over. Uh, and then that leaves us 10 overs. So 11 overs to get 55. They had exactly 55, 11 overs. So I thought I'll bring myself back on, keep one end quiet and see if we can bowl them out the other end. But I went for 17 in my over. So now it's 38 in 10. And I'm thinking, what have I done here? I mean, it had become a fuss. The scorers lost count in the middle of all the wides and came running onto the pitch saying what's going on. They'd lost count. The wicketkeeper went and stood by the sight screen and was rolling the ball back from behind the boundary. So the whole thing did slightly descend into chaos, which I regret. If I did it again, I'd be much more subtle. And um, uh, anyway, I took myself off. 38 needed. And I fought the fast bowler back on. Neil Taylor went on to play for Hampshire. Bowled him out. We won by 18. Wow. And we got into the changing room and you could just, you could imagine, we saw everybody sat in the changing room in complete silence. And then everybody started laughing at the same moment. <laughs> How did the bowler... Except the Cheshire people. <laughs> uh, yeah, did the bowler take much convincing? This is a really good plan. And um, you're the person... Talk about the bowler over. Yeah, you're <laughs> the bowler. He was our opening batsman, but he was young and fit. And I reckon he could run in and get it, do it 14 times. <laughs> and he did. No, he, he ended in wholeheartedly. Nobody... In the Dorset side, really, um, they didn't. Uh, they one or two were puzzled what was going on, but nobody, nobody objected, and um, there was a there was a consequence. I mean, the next day, um, it was all over the radio. It so happened that the Times, minor county correspondent of the Times, was covering the game, so it was all over the media next day. Radio Four ringing me, at, you know, on the Today program and stuff, and Tim Lamb saying he didn't think it was he was running the Test and County Cricket Board. He said that, you know, he didn't think that it was in, entirely in accord with the spirit of the game. But who was he to disagree with the vicar? <laughs> Things like that. It, all, it all got a bit difficult. And I mean, Phil Garner, who, was a, who later became a great friend, was with me in the over 50s team when we won it for Oxfordshire years later. We played Oxfordshire in the next game. And Phil refused to have a drink with me. He said I was a disgrace to the game. So it, 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 it I, I, I wouldn't do it again. I wouldn't do it again, to be honest. I think, um, I think it was sharp practice. And, the, and the, the 
rules committee of the minor counties then changed the rules that if you bowled wides or no balls deliberately, you'd be you'd be docked points. So it was so yeah. Yeah, I always think you've you've always achieved something if they end up changing the rules. Um, yeah. whether, whether it's you've a good thing or or whatever, when when the sport has to move the goalposts and change some of the rules in place because of something you've come up with. Um, I always think that's uh, that's a good effort. I'm obviously body. I, I wasn't actually. I wasn't the first person to do it. Chap who, who I mean, I wasn't. There is no such thing as an original thought. I'm told, and Frank Collier had done the same thing for Hertfordshire a few years before. I think not quite so blatantly and not quite so many, but he had bowled wides yeah. deliberately. Because when he when he talked about, um, I would have tried to be more subtle next time. You couldn't have been much less subtle than getting a plate to bowl. <laughs> Well, however many consecutive wides. You're absolutely right, Rob. No, um, it, 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 there was a complete absence of subtlety. <laughs> you kind of hope if they do change a rule, they're going to name it after you. You do hope at least, you know, you get you become immortal in that, in that sense. It get, went down in a book of the strangest cricket matches or something like that, isn't it? I think it's, it appears. But, uh... The thing is, though, it isn't. I mean, it's a little bit frowned upon. For the example Rob gave that Middlesex um, and Yorkshire did. But... It's not completely outlawed in the modern game, this sort of declaration bowling. And yeah. and then it's it's essentially it's just the opposite, you know. It's taking the opportunity you have in when in the field to make the game competitive the other way. So to me, maybe you could do it more subtly. The normal the normal thing in that situation is to bowl, you know, lob it up and just let them smash fours and sixes for a bit. The trouble was that I, I really thought that we could bowl bowl them out. We only needed four more wickets, so I thought we could bowl them out. And uh, only when it got down to 11 overs, I think, God, we're going to miss this out. And I thought if I bowl three overs of lobs to give them 50 runs, 60 runs, I'm only going to have eight overs left. It's not going to be enough to bowl them out. You know, I'm, it's, it's, it's making it, I'm not giving myself a chance. So I thought, how in the world do I get myself, give them 60 runs, but still keep 11 overs? And, yeah. and uh, that was when I, it was a pretty spontaneous. It wasn't thought out. It, it took me about two, suddenly came into my head. I thought, let's do it, you know. So, despite bringing minor counties cricket into disrepute, um, Ted, Ted Dexter gives you a call in 1991 and says, I'd love you to be the chaplain of the England cricket team. Yes. How did that kind of come about? What was the context behind him calling you? And had that role existed before or has no, it since? No, it hadn't. It hadn't existed before and, um, and doesn't exist now. Um, Ted Dexter had been in the England team with David Shepherd. Uh, in fifties and sixties, and in the Sussex team with David Shepherd, and he had a very positive experience of Christian influence in the team. He felt David was a very positive influence on the other players, who, who um, sometimes could perform less well because of the lifestyle, perhaps that they chose to leave or whatever. You know, on a wild, the wild side of things, and I think that what. Ted thought was that somebody who he called a spiritual advisor, that's what he called it, could have the same sort of um, calming pastoral influence in the team that David had had. Of course, it was, it was very different because I, I was very much on the fringe of the whole thing. I mean, I, often I felt a bit of a lemon, to be honest. I was, they were very, they were very, very nice to me. They were very kind and uh, welcoming, but I mean, you know, I think, I mean, Mike Atherton was, became captain in due course and he's remained and stayed a good friend. And um, I think he'd say that 
that, you know, the important thing was that I didn't get in the way. I think he'd say, you know, that if you asked him, you know, what contribution did Andrew make? He would say, well, at least he didn't get in the way. <laughs> and so I was, I was very much on the edge of things. But there were moments when players would come, and, you know, there were very intimate and confidential conversations and praying with, with players and listening to their struggles which obviously, you know, I don't feel I can talk about who, who those people were, obviously. And, uh, you know, one or two of them have written about it. I mean, Robin Smith has written quite a bit about it. So, and talked quite a bit about it. So, uh, you know, I can mention his name, but because um, only because he's, he's talked about it. But there were other, there were other situations as well. But it, I mean, when the wheels came off in that tour of Australia, when Andy Flower and Peterson and all that was there and, and Swan was getting injured and coming home and Trot came home early, Something went disastrously wrong in the changing room during that tour. And there were moments in the 90s when similar kind of things happened. I mean, you're talking about some quite fragile people in the England team at that stage, you know, Tuffers, Dominic Cork, Goffey, Rambrakesh, Thorpe. These were, they, they, they were wonderful chaps. So I mean, Hick, Hick, of course, you know, was he going to make it or wasn't he going to make it? There were moments, I think, when having someone there who, who they could go and have a drink with in a different part of the bar and have a quiet talk with made all the difference. And I do actually think, I don't know, but it's my opinion, that had they had someone like that in that Australian tour, when Trot was having a real struggle, Peterson was being very difficult. Peterson's the sort of person I would have got on really well with and he would have talked to me, you know, like Robin did. And um, I just feel it would have made a difference. I just feel it would have made a difference. Um, and of course, like football clubs have chaplains, rugby clubs have got chaplains, so chaplains all over the place now. As most sports, cricket is cricket. Funnily enough, is is the least open to it, and in a way, cricket's the most difficult because the players are away so much. It's really hard to to get to know the players. But uh, I do think that it was a I, I, it was a really worthwhile thing to do. Of course, it was an amazing privilege for me. I mean, it was just fantastic for ten years. I was welcomed into the England camp. I mean, amazing, couldn't believe it. I was even allowed to bowl in the nets occasionally, only against the bowlers. Yeah, did you get any good scalps? I remember, I remember bowling at Chris Silverwood in Bulawayo and uh, he wasn't playing in the game and uh, there was absolutely no one to give him a net. So I was, I was dispatched to bowl at him in the net and I took with me a chap who was traveling with me, Scottish guy, who was actually the chairman of Christians in Sport at the time, Douglas Smith. And I remember the first time he ran into bowl at Chris Silverwood in the net in Bulaway. And the ball was one of the way that's straight over the top of the net. You're not even into the net. Over <laughs> Chris Silverwood thinking, what is going on here? <laughs> I was, um, I was going to say, Andrew, I was kind of thinking about what the equivalent is now or what, you know, what is in that present in the dressing room now is that sort of pastoral presence. And I suppose maybe the team psychologist was the thing I was thinking of as the alternative. But what would you say from your perspective, having done it for 10 years, would be the differences between what you yeah. were offering to the team and what maybe someone like a psychologist or psychologist <laughs> Apart from the fact that obviously I was a Christian and therefore there was a kind of prayerful spiritual aspect to it. But in yeah. terms of counselling of the players, the difference is that the sports psychologist uh, and everybody else are employed by the ECB uh, and are part of the management structure. So the player could come to me and say, look, 
my wife's having an affair with somebody else or I'm having an affair with somebody else or my children are ill or I've got shocking form. I can't, I go to the net. I don't think I can make a run. They know it wasn't going any further than me. There was no way I was going to be at a selection meeting. There was no way I was going to divulge any of that sort of thing to anybody. Now, the sports psychologist has a really important role to play. I'm not against it at all. I'm, I'm in favor of it. I think it's really helpful, but they, they do report back to the to the management. They do, and I mean, if you're, I don't know, you think of some of the things that have happened recently: Triscothic, Trot, uh, Hoggard, even Freddie Flintoff now with his has uh, talked openly about his eating disorders. It's very difficult for players to show their weakness to someone who's then going to report to the manager. It's very difficult to do that, and um, I think that a, a pastor, a chaplain is the person who should be there to enable them to do that. And of course, then pray with them about that situation. And none of them ever stopped me from praying with them. They all, they love being prayed for. They love being prayed for. And it was lovely to lead some of them to Christ in that situation. I remember reading Matthew Hoggard's book and just before he got dropped by England towards the end of his England career, I think he was having a tough time on an international tour in Melbourne, India. Um, and he said to, I think it wasn't a member of backroom staff, it wasn't a psychologist, I think it was Vaughan. He said, I think I'm doing a Trez, I think I'm doing a Trez go, you know, referring to Scoffic. And then very yeah. shortly afterwards, Fletcher, I think, said something, or there was some kind of intuition that uh, whoever the coach was, and Hoggard instantly thought, have you told them? And mm. pretty soon after, but I think that what you said kind of reminded me of that, that lack of a safe space to talk about an issue i hadn't really thought about the difference in terms of being employed by the ecb not employed by the ecb so it's really interesting to hear. Robin, Robin, in his book robin smith writes about an incident that happened in in india with, with when phil tufnell lost his rag completely on the pitch uh, in in a place called bishop of Hattenham when they were playing between between the calcutta test and the madras test on that tour the madras test which was the famous prawn poisoning match but anyway the um the, the point is that in the evening after the game, Tufnell was fine and he was sharing a room with Robin and he was in a really bad way. He was a really, really bad way and very, very upset and um, traumatized, really. I mean, it, it, he, he was fragile at that stage. I, I knew Phil from when I was a vicar in North London and he had lived in the parish. So I'd known him since he was 15. And I knew that he was in, he was in real stress and strain. And um, Robin's written about it eloquently in his book. and. Um, the management eventually had a crisis meeting, what they're going to do with him because he was so out of control. And they were about to send him home. And they called me in, Bob Bennett, Keith Fletcher, Graham Gooch. I remember going into the room and uh, I said, what, what, what's happening? And they said, well, we're just going to send the blank, blank home. I said, you just cannot do that. You cannot do that. That's the end of his career. If you do that, it's just a terrible thing to do. So I think that I did kind of, apart from spending a bit of time with Phil, I think I was able there to say to the management, look, I can't tell you what's going on, but that is, you know, that to send someone home at this moment for this thing is absolutely the wrong thing. And uh, of course, also to send your left arm spinner home from an India tour is not the wisest thing to do in the best of times anyway. You know, so uh, yeah. um, anyway, there were, th there were moments like that when, I was privy to information, which I couldn't disclose, but I could, I could speak up for the players. I had to be very careful. And I, I can see why you were talking about the Australia tour, where it seemed like a player was heading home 
every other week during that tour. And it was such a, a mess. Well, that... I just, I just think things have got into such a muddle on that tour. Just, you know, it seems extraordinary to me now. You know, surely somebody could have sat somebody down and talked some sense into it. I mean, Andy Flower's a really good man and uh, he must have been at his wits end. I can't, because, you know, you know I, I don't know, something went wrong. And I just feel an objective listening ear might have helped. That role of being an objective listening ear is kind of a, a role of a chaplain. And you were a chaplain at a, a couple of Olympics, Seoul in 88, London 2012, 24 years apart. And um, what were they like? And, and, and Sydney. Oh, we were Sydney as well. Let me just tell you one story about Sydney. You, you, you may remember that Sydney won the bid and Manchester were the other possibility for the 2020, for two, 2000 Olympics. So I'm sitting there by the Harbour Bridge, drinking a beautiful glass of Chardonnay, looking at the bridge with a huge screen of the Olympics being played one evening. And someone comes up and taps me on the shoulder, some friend from back home, and just says, just think, Andrew, he said, we could have been in Manchester. <laughs> it was very good news being in Sydney. <laughs> Now, being a chap in the Olympics is an amazing experience and a, a really great privilege to be living in the heart of the village. We don't live in the village, but you're in the village every day. There are a lot of Christian people taking part in the Olympics of all sorts of backgrounds and so on. And they come to the religious center at various times. So you're having Bible studies, prayer meetings. Um, you're out around the village meeting up with people. Uh, some of the time, there's, you, you know, you're at a loose end. Uh, but... At any moment, there's a kind of champagne moment pastorally. I just think it's a, a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. The great thing is that the Olympic Games requires there to be freedom of worship. So they have to have a religious center. And the crucial thing is to man that with chaplains, men and women, not only men and women who love Jesus, which is very important indeed, but also people who love sport, who really love the sport and aren't fans about it, but love sports people. Not, not, I make that distinction, that's quite important. They're not going around looking for autographs and things like that. But they are sports people. They understand what competition is about. A lot of, a lot of vicars are fans, and, uh, and it's not the answer at all. Well, I remember Jonathan Edwards telling me, of course, Jonathan is, wouldn't call himself a Christian now, but I remember in 2000, he did call himself a Christian and, and said, I do a ridiculous thing. I jump three times into a sandpit. That's what I do. That's, that's what I do. That's what God's called me to do. And he said, I feel, I remember telling me, he said, I feel like the little boy who brought five loaves and two fish to Jesus, something completely useless for 5,000 people. All I can bring is my triple jump and lay it, lay it at Jesus' feet. And he won the gold medal next day. But of course, sadly, not, not professing faith at the moment. Did, did you notice a, a, maybe a difference in some of the issues or concerns and pressures that athletes are experiencing from 1988 to 2000 to 2012? Or was much of it the same in terms of, pressure of competition and I don't think I noticed any difference really I mean I think that the, the big issues are identity it's so so many sports people wrap up their identity in their performance it, they're so wrapped up with I, I am somebody if I run fast if I jump high if I score tries if I make runs and if I don't make runs who am I and you know the Christian has this glorious opportunity to have their identity somewhere else other than their performance their identity is in christ you know whether i make a hundred or whether i make naught i'm loved by god i'm a child of god and this gives a christian a huge advantage in in sport in my opinion a massive advantage once they understand that 
if, you see, if, if your whole identity is totally wrapped up in your sport and you commit everything to it and fail, then it's a crisis. So a lot of professional sports will just hold back a little bit, just hold back a little bit because, you know, if you give everything and fail, who am I? Christian can give everything and still be loved by God. It's a massive advantage, massive advantage. I wish people could, I wish, I, I, love, I love explaining it to sports people that um, you can play with utter abandonment if you're a Christian. Very difficult if you're not a Christian, because if you fail, who are you? Uh, well, on that profound note, which um, I, have, <laughs> I think in many ways is very applicable to even to working life. I mean, I think of my, my work Absolutely. is yeah. a high performance. It's not just sport. Sport, it, sport is because sport is so ridiculous. You know, your golfers trying to just trying to get a small ball into a hole. I mean, so much of sport. I mean, we love it. We're passionate about it. We spend hours training for it and working at it. But it's, it's essentially ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, but your whole identity is wrapped up in it. And um, yeah. if you suddenly find you can't do it, that, and so that's why most sports people's crisis comes at retirement. That's when most, that, that is when the chaplain is most needed, is when people come to the end of their career. That's when, that's when many of them face it. When it's that, I was Rob Starman, the Premier League striker. Now I am Rob Starman. I remember Alex Ribeiro, who, who was a Formula One racing driver, from Brazil, and uh, he's, he started the sports ministry in Brazil. And he said to me, when I, when I was driving a Formula One racing car in Brazil, I was a superstar. Everybody knew me, Mr. Superstar. As soon as I stopped driving, I'm Mr. Ordinary, I'm just Mr. Ordinary. And uh, sports people find that very hard. Right, for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, look, we won't, we've seen family members, grandchildren um, walking behind <laughs> you. We won't keep you any longer. Uh, it's been lovely to meet you. So much, lovely, uh, to talk to you. It's been lovely to have you. Lovely to meet you, Mike. Very good to meet you, Mike, too. Very good to see you. Take care.